We do not know what Imipac is. Exactly. The least we've got to do is find out what it does. Why have we? I can live without it. It's just conceivable that you can't. Unless, of course, you want your last words to be, so that's Imipac. Hello and welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this is episode 17, Weapon. Mm. <laughs> come on, come on. This was written by Chris Boucher. It is directed by George Spenton Foster, the first of four episodes he does all in season two. Mm-hmm. First broadcast on the 23rd of January 1979. The ratings, 6.4 million for this one, down 1.2 million from yes. Shadow. Now, I don't know whether there was something going on that week or the slightly unorthodox Maybe. plot in Shadow. Maybe didn't get people coming back. We can just guess, given that it was 40 years ago. Yep. <laughs> so, Richard, it's uh, yours to take us through this week. Yeah, so we'll start. What are your initial thoughts on this one? Okay. There are some very cool big ideas in this. Uh-huh. Uh, Carnell is a very good character, and actually Carnell is very well played. You've got the Clone yes, Masters is. is a cliched but interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Imi Pack is actually a very original and very cool idea. And the writing is very good. It's Chris Boucher. And as I said, Carnell is very good. That all said, though, this is unfortunately a rare example, actually, on the podcast so far, of an episode that's actually gone down on my watching it for the podcast. I had sort of fond memories of this very much based around enjoying the Chris Boucher dialogue. Yep. And that, that was sort of what had lasted in my memory. Going back to watch it all the way through again, I did struggle with it. There are cool ideas that just are not used mm. and are sort of thrown away. And, and look, we'll have the conversation, but I guess I should give you a chance to talk. But we mentioned in Shadow the problem that Chris Boucher's sort of been waiting a season and a bit to write an episode and it feels like he's just got five, six, seven ideas he's been desperate to do. Yes. And they all just get thrown into these two episodes and they don't all work. But, look, I've spoken for a bit. How do you feel about Weapon? Yeah, well, that, that probably was one of my leading points. We'll talk about the direction as we go through it because I, I think that is an issue here and there are obviously some well-known anecdotes probably about the direction in this. But, yeah, I think part of the problem is there's too much stuff to sort of throw in at us. Unfortunately, the script doesn't really spend any time with any of it. No, and, and a lot is just dispensed. Which is a shame, because I think if you were doing this now, a lot of these would probably be maybe mini-arcs, or at least something you saw progress over a few episodes. Yes, you could imagine, for example, the visit to the world of the Clone Masters mm. being done in Episode 3, and then you get something more about that in Episode 6, yep. and then you get the big reveal of what they've done in Episode 7 or something, yeah. Yeah, so look, I do think that is a bit of a problem. This is, although it's the second one of his screen, this is the first script Chris Boucher wrote for the series. Yes, and the individual bits of dialogue are very good. It's the bigger plot that doesn't work. Yes, it is a very interesting idea, because Carnell's plan, and again, we'll get to this in a minute, but Carnell's plan is clearly extremely intricate. Yes. Very well thought out and very detailed, but, yeah, we don't really spend any time with him. There are also some very... Look, I'll say it. There are some very poor, in my view, creative choices made by a number of people, both in front of the camera and and behind behind the camera. Having said that, look, again, I was 
entertained for quite a bit of it. The dialogue, as you said, is great yeah. for the most part. There is some really, really good interactions here between the characters and between the characters and the guest cast. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's sort of a, a bit of an uninspiring mess when viewed as a, as a whole episode. So we spoke about the director. Do you want to perhaps start there? Because, as you said, George Spenton Foster has a reputation. And with one cast member in particular, who I think it's a matter of record, look, he didn't get on with Brian Croucher. At the time this was done, there was strike action in the air at the BBC. Now, apparently he seems to have taken the decision, rather than sort of wait and see what happened or get a remount or do whatever, he just decided, well, I'm just going to push through and get this done so it's in the can before anything happens. I know Chris Boucher has gone on record as saying how deeply unhappy he was with how the episode came out. So George Benton Foster's got a reputation both in Blake 7, in Doctor Who and some other stuff he's worked on as being a very gregarious and sort of fun director, but also... If he liked you. If he liked you. Now, he had a nickname that um, yes. probably says a lot about his character, and rather than mm. us telling you about it, we're going to just cut in here a clip from Doctor Who producer John Nathan Turner's autobiography, <laughs> and um, look, we'll just play that. The director was an extremely witty man, George Spenton Foster, known affectionately as George Spenton... <laughs> He got on famously with Tom, and everyone else for that matter, especially Wanda Ventham, with whom I instantly fell in love. So, yeah, I think someone with that nickname probably you know, uh, was a particular type of manager. Yeah, I, I think so. Now, he was known, I think, to play favourites with members of the cast. Yeah, and certainly the stories that we've heard and been told, we have no reason to disbelieve them, are if you were an actor who just sort of got on with the job and found your own motivation and just did what you were told... He got on very well with you. If you were somebody, and Brian Croucher is very much this sort of an actor who wants the director to help him find, you know, what's the character's motivation? Mm. Why am I doing this? What's the tone of the episode? He's just like, why are you bothering with me? This go away and say you lines. Yes, just stand there, say your lines so we can move on. Yeah, and I think it's very easy to judge Spenton Foster for it. But as you say, we are working in the BBC. I mean, we're basically getting up to the winter of discontent in the UK. Mm -hmm. It's a difficult time. And there is a time and a place for directors who can just get stuff in the can, on time, on budget. And they're not always the most creative. They're not always the most fun to work with, but they get the job done. Mm -hmm. It is debatable, though, whether this one, he's been a little bit too utilitarian in the way he's gone about it. Uh, saying about the relationship with the actors, look, he really hit it off with Jacqueline Pierce and really hit it off with Scott Fredericks, who played Carnell. Yes. Anyway, look, we should get into the actual episode. I have broken this one down probably into three main points and a couple of minor ones. So our main points really, I guess, are Travis, Carnell and his plan, and Koza and Immy Pack. But before we go there, can I just make one opening yeah. point? Like Shadow, this is one that starts in a very unconventional way. It doesn't start yes. on the Liberator, and neither does it start in a identifiable Federation location. No. It starts with a opening of a ship exploding, mm -hmm. two people we've never met dressed very strangely, doing weird things, and it doesn't yes. feel like a Blake 7 episode, in the same way Shadow didn't. No, and then it actually goes into a, probably what's an even stranger scene, because you have a character you recognise and one you don't. Yes. So, of course, that does probably lead us quite neatly into our Travis stuff. Now, I guess addressing perhaps the elephant in the room first, Travis is now played by Brian Croucher. He is. Now, actors get recast in shows. That, that's a reality. Mrs. Harriet in All Creatures Great and Small was a mm -hmm. classic example. Half the cast of Brushstrokes changed over the course of yes. the series. Yeah, It happens, generally more in sitcoms than drama. Mm. 
What's bizarre here, though, is the way it's introduced. It would be interesting to know what the audience at the time made of the change. Because, look, us watching it, obviously, as fans and knowing what's coming and seeing Travis 2, as we might call him, seeing his opening scene is really jarring. It is, and I was trying to put myself in the position of someone watching for the first Mm. time, because I'm conscious of that doing the podcast. Yeah, I do remember watching it when I was really young. I must admit, I don't remember what I thought of Travis. Well, I I knew that there were two Travises when I first saw it, so it wasn't a surprise Which perhaps means, actually, for me as a 9 or 10-year-old, it actually didn't make any difference. Yeah, maybe, but the thing is, he's designed differently. So you cut to this guy who's wearing a Federation uniform different to Travis's but similar. Yep. He's got an eye patch that's different to the one that Stephen Greif had. Yep, and a gun hand. And a gun hand, which is the same. Yep. So you're sort of sitting there going, well, it's a dude with an eye patch and a gun hand and a big orange ring. Mm. I assume this is Travis. It looks kind of like Travis. Is but... it a dream sequence or something? Yeah. yeah, and then on top of that, you've got the Blake clone walking out, not acting like Blake. And so it's just sort of levels of bizarreness on top of each other. And, and you would perhaps have thought, knowing that you have changed your actor, you might have written his very first scene perhaps slightly differently. I think there was a thing that Dave Maloney and Chris Boucher thought that the audience wouldn't see past the uniform and the eye patch. I mean, just, okay, well, let, let's just move on. Yes, but you would think that the opening would be something like Serverland saying, Travis, come over here. Mm. Hopefully a bit better written, but that's sort of a, you know, hey, Travis, and then the guy yes. turns around and that's the new Travis. One thing with the recast... At the end of the first season, there was a conscious decision made to develop Travis's character somewhat and actually make a change to to the dynamic so that the actual change of him being more insolent, being sort of more psychotic or more of a loose cannon or whatever you want to call him, was actually scripted. Chris Boucher saw season two Travis as somebody who'd sort of been reprogrammed, and Travis says he's been to the retraining therapist. He'd been reprogrammed to be more useful, but because... Travis is perhaps a little unhinged to begin with and obviously has this overriding obsession with killing Blake. The training really hadn't worked properly and he was now just totally unstable. Yeah. But unfortunately, of course, because you've got a new actor, all that nuance just gets lost. No, that's right. It would be fascinating if, if we could imagine this episode with Stephen Greif mm. and suddenly Travis is completely unhinged and psychotic and not in that contained way, in that more overt, extrovert way. Mm. That would be a fascinating character development, but here you just think it's... Brian Croucher. It's just his take on the role. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is quite sad, but... And we'll certainly be looking at Brian Croucher's performance over the course of Series 2. I think that he comes in for unfair criticism because, he, as you said, he's been compared to Stephen Greif, but he's been asked to do something very different to Stephen Greif. And I suspect had he been asked to do that more internally Maybe. focused one, he would do a very different performance. Um, and look, we're jumping ahead a bit, but it probably doesn't also help. The first two episodes he appears in are, are both with a director he doesn't get on with. Plus, of course, he's got the whole thing about he's come in, he's taken over an established role, he has to slot into a, an established group with the other actors, and the fact that he's given minimal direction, really, you know, is, is probably a big hindrance. Yeah, and, and I think he's up and down in this one. There are moments where he's snarling and a bit over at the top, yeah. and you sort of go, oh... Is that really how we want to do mm. this? But there are some of his interactions with Servaline that are very well done. Mm. And some of the stuff towards the end of the episode where he's actually does pull it down a bit, he's actually sort of kind of enjoying Servaline's misfortune. That's very well done. So I, I see good and bad in this performance, but as you say, it's, it's not ideal. No, it's not it's an ideal start. One particular thing that did happen, and I don't know whether this is the root problem with George Benton Foster, but... 
the scene where he grabs Serverland by the throat, mm-hmm. whatever it was he did in the first take actually hurt her. And apparently the director went right off at him. And you notice when he grabs her in the take they use in the show, he's really only holding her with his thumb and forefinger. Yeah. You notice he's being very particular to be very careful about what he does. Whether that's the root cause of it or whether that's just another nail in the coffin, so to speak. Yes, but interestingly here, what it is that triggers Travis's anger is that mm. he's been used. Yes, and he understands that really now he's utterly expendable. Yes, and he doesn't like being manipulated. Mm. But at least it does prompt probably one of Servland's most famous lines of the entire series. You devious. You always have been devious. You knew what would happen. Take your hand off me. You knew if it was Blake, I'd kill him. I'd have to kill him. You'll rot in a slave pit on Ursa Prime, Travis. Now, we're going to have a lot of conversations about Travis over the next dozen episodes or so. Yep. One point I do want to make here, though, is that even though we've got all of this strange behaviour, this psychotic behaviour, he's openly threatening and and his hand on Servalant's throat, he's actually shown to be very good at his job. When he's sent off to organise the hunt for Koza, he's very efficient, he does it very well. There is that bit about how... The uh, chief of security has reassured him that he was involved and uh, he died doing so. I assume the security commander is under arrest. He was. Was? He died under interrogation. You said you wanted quick results. Was he implicated? No. Unfortunate. Why? He might have told us where Koza is. But he he does it very well. He quickly works out where Koza's gone. Mm. He's very quick in his mind of the planet before Servalan even has to tell him to do it. And the only thing that he doesn't do correctly, so to speak, is he doesn't realise that Servland's priority is not finding Koza. No. It's finding the weapon. Yes. But other than that, I mean, he actually is given some credibility as a character because he's actually very good at his job. He's just psychotic. next topic I had really was probably Carnell. If you were doing Carnell now, or Carnell's plan now, this would be something that you would do over the space of a season or at least a number of episodes. Because Carnell's plan is, it's very all-encompassing. I mean, it covers everything. It covers Koza obviously finally reaching the tipping point and killing everybody and then escaping from the Federation base. It also covers Blake and his crew uncovering the message and pretty much plots out exactly what they will do. They'll uncover the messages that Serverland sends them. It's really incredibly detailed, but it's just sort of all glossed over. I agree. It is phenomenally well done, particularly right down to the conclusion of the plot, Mm. where they know that Blake's last command will be not to run, but to try and put the planet between them. So that means that the pursuit ship's coming in, will see that the Liberator is leaving, so they'll assume Mm. that Blake has got it, etc., etc. It is very cleverly done. And there were a number of times when I was looking back going, that's right, there was a reference to that. Yeah. And it works here. I think it is by far the best part of this episode, particularly because of Carnell's performance. I guess we'll talk about that in a moment. But you're right. It would be a more interesting idea. And and look, this is more modern television. Mm. It's not 1979 television. No, of course not. But this idea, if there were little things happening throughout the series, or Carnell was introduced and just nudging things along, and then there was the big payoff. That's the thing. You would see, you know, Serverland talking to this bloke maybe one scene every couple of episodes, and then the end-of-season thing would be this whole plan he's been putting together and, and running for the entire season. Something like Mr Morden from Babylon 5. Yes, very much so. Because, again, we said it's convoluted. It's also clearly been running for a lot of time, and it means Serverland has obviously been aware of the existence of Pack for a very long time. 
Servalane is obviously clearly pretending, or at least acting, in a lot of the stuff where she's interacting with Travis and the Clone Masters. Yes. Ju- just to sort of keep the narrative moving in the right direction. Yes, and that's very interesting because we see Servalane moving things along and nudging things along, mm. not always in the most obvious ways. And, and there is this idea that she's up to something. But, but it's, it is 25 minutes in before Carnell first appears, mm. and that's where she has the it's going wrong Carnell line. Supreme Commander. It's going wrong, Carnell. Wrong? And that's another example of just how heavy this plot is, mm. that somebody as fundamental to it as Carnell isn't even on screen until the 25 minutes in because we've got to establish Imipak, we've got to establish the Weapons Development Centre, yep. we've got to establish the Clone Masters, the Blake clone, reintroduce Travis. Mm. By the time we've got through all of that, now we actually can have the plot with the main guest captor. Yes, that's right. I thought this was really, really well done, but again, it was just too short. I really would have liked to have seen this. This would be, I reckon, a great mini arc. You do notice that really one random element basically brings his entire plan down, which really shows just how detailed and everything it is. Yes, but he does make the case, and I think justifiably, Mm. that if he'd been aware of that random element, he could have adjusted things. Yes, he would have adjusted the strategy somewhat. It's the one thing that she was just so unimportant that nobody looked at her twice. Absolutely. All of that said, the idea of the psycho-strategist, I think, is a wonderful creation. And it is such a Chris Boucher creation. Mm. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously either external to the Federation, at least some sort of freelancer, because he's obviously expecting to be well-paid for yes. what he does. Yes, It's not just some Federation person that the Serverlands just co-opted to work for her for the next few weeks. Mm. No, but, that's true. I hadn't thought of that. You're right, you're right. Yeah, so I don't know. There's maybe a guild or something getting a bit dune, maybe, but um, <laughs> there's maybe a, a psycho-strategist guild that you go and employ. And, and certainly the officer that he meets in Servland's headquarters mm. is a bit stunned and, and awestruck yes. that, that he's met a puppeteer. Mm. Let's talk about Scott Fredericks then. Yeah, I thought he was really, really good. He's fantastically good. He's yeah. wonderfully camp without being over the top. He gets some wonderful interactions with Servalan. It's clear that Chris Boucher is enjoying writing for this character and that Scott Fredericks is enjoying saying the dialogue. Oh, I think he's having a lot of fun. Mom, I'm mortified by your lack of confidence. If I lose Koza and his invention, mortified is exactly what you'll be. And that just sort of sums up that whole relationship, but... Even the flirtatious way that he interacts with Servalan, which again, mm. as you say, shows that he's outside of the chain of command. He's not actually Servalan's inferior no, or junior. No, he's not a lackey. No. no, he's not a lackey. He's been hired by her and he's happy to flirt mm. with her. And he actually seems kind of happy to flirt with the officer as well. Yes. 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 I think this is obviously just that's how he gets what he wants. Yes. Absolutely a highlight of this episode. Mm. And I suppose we probably should say at the end, of course, when his plan does come undone, he really has no option, obviously, but to flee. Yes, he's very aware that Servalan... And this is the thing, Servalan not only will kill him out of malice, mm. she will kill him out of necessity. Yes. Because he now knows too much. But he, he does get that, again, one of the most famous lines, I think, in the whole series, which is his, <laughs> his farewell line. One last thing, Supreme Commander. I must tell you this. You are undoubtedly the sexiest officer I have ever known. Well, I guess that now probably brings us to the reason for the episode, which, of course, is Koza and Imipak. Now, I'm going to make the opening point here. 
I found it very hard to have really much sympathy for Koza because he is really unpleasant. Absolutely, I agree. He's an unsympathetic character in every sense of the word. And let's get down to it. I said in my introduction that there are a number of creative choices in front of and behind the camera that simply draw this episode down. Mm. And a lot of them revolve around this plot. The way that John Bennett chooses to portray Koza is just not in sync with the script, I don't think. No. It's not a great performance, and it's a nasty performance. I'm not sure really what we're meant to think. I mean, obviously he's bitter, and he's got a massive chip on his shoulder, and he's resentful of the way he was treated by his superiors in the Federation. And that anger and that comes across in the performance, but we're told really he should by now should be really unhinged. Now, unless that just comes across as sort of rage... Yeah, he clearly doesn't like the Federation caste system or class mm. system because of where he is in it. He's actually very happy to treat somebody junior than him with utter contempt. Well, that's the thing. I mean, he goes on about how she's free and how he freed her and don't call me sir, you're not a slave anymore. But he treats her like dirt. Yeah, do what I say, do what I tell you, well, etc. I mean, he threatens to kill her twice. Yeah, so by the time he's killed, I just didn't care. I was happy no. to see him go. It's not helped by the fact that Candice Glendening, who plays Rochelle isn't the best actress either. Look, she didn't have a long career. We'll talk about that in the guest cast segment, but she doesn't give a good performance here. I I don't Mm. mind saying that. So you've got an unusual performance and a frankly bad performance, whilst dressed in the most ridiculous costumes in the most tedious and dull sets. Yes, I did have a specific note about the costume. Now, we did mention in Redemption that June Hudson now has come on board. She's the costume designer for the first half of season two. We did say, look, that she makes some great costuming decisions. When they work, they are a real cut above what we saw in the first season. Absolutely, and there are some truly iconic costumes that come from her. Problem is, at the other end of the scale, you've got some really, really just laughable stuff. And unfortunately, we see two of them here, particularly Koza. I don't know what he's meant to be (laughs) by the costume. No, and look, we're overdue for our weekly shout-out to the Making Blake 7 Twitter feed. Yes, indeed. Actually, we should have probably dropped a couple of shouts out for them already. (laughs) But he does tell the anecdote there of when John Bennett first got in the costume and was walking to set... And the producer, Dave Maloney, walked past him and said, oh, what are you meant to be? Oh, I'm an engineer. And Maloney's just sort of burst out laughing at <laughs> just how absurd it is that this, this weapons designer is basically in a dress with a fancy ceremonial collar. The Bond slave is in an evening gown. Yeah, sort of in uh, 19th century travelling clothes almost. Yeah. I mean, Carnell is again in a dress, but it's a very ornate one. And that works for his personality. Mm. It's halfway between being camp and being that sort of academic sort of look. It really goes with Carnell's huge ego. Yeah. It is the kind of costume somebody like that would wear. On the other hand, Serverland has that wonderful innate collar which works mm. for her, but the almost sort of bare midriff just doesn't no. lend credibility to her character. No. And of course we should say, this episode is the debut of Avon's lobster suit. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which apparently Paul Darrow hated. Yes, he did. Well, he used to creak, I think was one of the problems. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was a costume he said they had to do retakes because they could hear his suit creaking. <laughs> All of which is a way of saying, look, we're not going to be bagging June Hudson every episode. There are some great stuff, but this, yes. this episode, the choices are terrible. So, some of them are really bad. So Koza is already an unsympathetic character in a ridiculous costume, mm. and the sets and location work are just terrible. Mm. I mean, they choose to have all the most important scenes of this episode in a badly lit, dusty canteen. Like, it's not even an interesting canteen. It's literally a few chairs from the BBC canteen clearly just sort of brought down a bit of 
set dust thrown on them. And three rats. And three rats, yeah, and a bad claw. Yeah. Like, it's, it's so bad. And even, and even with the location work, we've seen in Blake 7, two episodes ago, for example, mm. where they went to the nuclear power plant for redemption. Fantastic use of design, yep. fantastic use of locations, really imaginative stuff, making industrial 1970s plants look like alien worlds. And here we get just... I don't know, the back end of somewhere. Yeah. It's just sort of canisters. There's even bloody, like, road markings on the... Mm. on the. It's just... There's no attempt to make this look like the future or no, space. I... It's just lazy and bad, and it doesn't help an episode <laughs> that's already struggling. Well, I think we've kicked that enough now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know with Koza, because, as I said, the thing about his resentment of the Federation system and everything really comes across quite strongly. Obviously, he feels he's been belittled by the people around him. Nobody gives him enough credit. He's obviously a lot smarter than in whatever grading he's been given. But even Blake discounts him as, you know, well, he's only a beta-class technician, so they're not going to raise a security alert for yes. him. Yeah, that's um, a very interesting line from Blake as well. Yeah, it must be the weapon. And the thing is, his death is just sort of really... It just happens really quickly. It really is. It comes out of nowhere. He's cowering in the corner. Mm. Serverland just says, let's test this weapon. Yep. And he says, no, 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 and gets killed. And they cut away from him when he dies. He doesn't even get to do the, you know, the gruesome death scene no. or something. But again, it shows how unimportant he is. Maybe unimportant is the wrong word. It shows how the interest in him is actually not the main focus because he's killed 10 minutes before the end of the episode. Yes. In Boucher's mind, clearly the focus of the episode is actually Carnell. Mm. Carnell and the weapon. Carnell and the weapon because Carnell gets the last scene. He, he makes does. it through to the closing credit. Yeah, probably a couple of other nights I had here with Emmy Pack. Emmy Pack really, I wouldn't have thought it would be a weapon Blake would get a lot of use out of. To be honest, it's probably more a serverland type weapon. Yes. So she can use it to control people. Jumping forward into next season, we do see something that could perhaps be a bit similar to Emmy Pack. Perhaps that is true. Yes. Yeah, it's a means of control, controlling populations. Koza even says, really, it is a way for you to be a god. Yes. As a weapon, it is actually not that useful in terms of quick or instant responses because no. if you need to shoot somebody, you then need to pause, go get the other bit and... No, that's the thing. It. This is not going to help Blake take central control. No, it's not. But I guess Blake doesn't know that. No, well, that's true. And indeed, we see Blake's naivety about what the weapon is with that wonderful exchange that he, Villa and Avon have. Yes, indeed. Another note I did have, and unfortunately this is probably a directorial thing, when they use him, he pack on the poor guard. You notice Travis is actually standing next to Serverland. Yes, I did have that note. He's actually closer than the guard is. And we also have another piece of direction. Even when I saw this when I was about 12 for the first time, I remember this being dodgy. The bit where every member of the Liberator crew has to pause in exactly oh, the same yeah. spot. <laughs> so that Travis can mark them with Imipak. Yeah. Paul Darrow at least sort of does a bit of stuff with his gun and is trying to make it look like he's scouting it out. David Jackson, look, he literally just sort of walks to his mark, pauses, gets shot, and then carries on. Yes. It's the sort of thing, if one of them had done it, you'd get away with it, but yep. three of them in a row, all yeah. standing exactly where they need to stand so Travis can mark them. It's a terrible directorial choice. One other thing with Travis having been impacted, you obviously get the impression that when... Serverland has got her hands on the weapon and Travis gets to kill Blake. Obviously, that will kill him as well. So that takes care of all her problems. Yes. Mm. And there are no witnesses. No, exactly. Which shows that at this point, although Serverland is willing to use Travis, mm. he is utterly dispensable. Yes. And indeed, she was going to kill Carnell as well mm. because that would be the last witness. Yes, that's right. 
and obviously we end with the idea that the weapon guards itself, much like the Clone Masters. So again, talking about unusual creative choices, what the hell is going on here? Well, it's interesting because the setup is clearly that they're meant to be this awesome and powerful group. And you see when Clone Master Finn comes in, you know, you sort of get the Murray Gold choir drink uh, <laughs> up. I do like the idea that perhaps, you know, just before she comes out, she hits play on the MP3 play, <laughs> turns on the dry ice machine before she walks out. But... It's done very much, you know, she comes down the stairs with the draping costume and the dry ice billowing everywhere. It's very strange. It is very strange. It's not as clever as I think it wants to be. There's that moment where she's building up to what is meant to be a really big revelation that Mm. she herself is a clone. Mm. To which I just sort of went, well, duh. Like, (laughs) you're a race called the Clone Masters. Mm. Wasn't that big a surprise. Yeah. And there's also this idea that Boucher puts in there that the room is organic and alive, which is sort of conveyed by the fact that the four bits of white backdrop have a different light shone on them. Yes, it's just, you it's notice, just too cheap a set to pull that off. Although you notice that lighting change is in response, really. It's, a lot of it's in response to Travis. It goes red when he kills the first clone and then goes white again or goes light again when the clone master in all her majesty comes out. And it then goes red again when he's in there threatening Servalane. It does, but there's no directorial touch to highlight that or emphasise that. No. Or sort of alert the audience, hey, keep an eye out for this no, stuff going on. No, there is one line, I think, about it reacts to vibe in the room or something. By but... which time it's all happened. Yes. And as I say, the, the, the set... I know they're on a budget with Blake 7, we can't mm. pick on it too much, but again, other episodes have done so much more than what we get here, which is basically four flats, a few curtains, and a spotlight. It's <laughs> a just, dry ice machine. It's a dry yeah. ice machine, yeah. It's... I, I was probably going to say bigger picture stuff. The Clone Masters... You would think they would be a big universe-changing idea to introduce. If you can create clones of Blake and the rest of the crew, or any of the other crew members, that would have massive potential in terms of storylines and the hunt for Blake, you would think. Yeah, it's an idea that I think probably was worthy of its own episode. Mm. But again, it sort of disappears. The Blake clone comes back at the end, and there's sort of Mm. stuff around him, but... The Clone Masters disappear. I'm going to ask you the question, though, on the Clone Master topic. Do you think that they know that Serverland's manipulating them and just sort of feeding them the lines they want to hear, or are they genuinely taken in by her? No, I, I get the impression. I mean, look, the Clone Master's final line is... You understand the rule of life, Serverland, almost as thoroughly as you understand trust. Which I think shows clearly she's onto Serverland, really. Yeah, that's my take as well. Yeah. Which is a very nice moment. It's just dispensed with two minutes. No, as I said, you're right. I think it's probably something that really, had it been done across an entire episode that they're making clones of the crew and the crew discover this and have to deal with it, I think that would have been a much better idea. Yeah, I agree. Mm. A couple of minor points just about the plot that I want to mention. I do like the line about on all the colonised planets there are rats. Yeah. It's a nice little world-building detail that I think is good. I also noticed that not only is the claw that attacks Koza and Rochelle poorly done, and look, that's okay. You're not going to spend too much money on something that's on screen for 30 seconds. No. But do you notice it actually takes three scenes for it to attack? 
there's the something's outside, oh no it's not, mm. oh I think I heard something, no you didn't, and then, oh no there's nothing outside, and the claw attacks. Yes. Which is amazing that in an episode so heavy with so many plot strands... You can devote time to that. Yeah, it should have just mm. been one, one scene done mm. and gone. Yeah, we probably should talk about the regular crews, we really haven't mentioned them very much. And I guess the reason for that is really, they don't actually have a lot to do in this episode. No, they are very much just parts of the plot that get moved along. That said, those those first two or three scenes on board the Liberator flight deck are, I think, by far some of the best stuff in the episode. Mm. And indeed, 10 or 15 minutes into this, I was actually really enjoying it because of those scenes and those crew interactions. Now, before we talk a bit more about that, I do want to just make the point that when Avon is looking for Blake, he assumes Jenna will know where he is. <laughs> yes, that's true. And the way that Darren delivers that line, I think there is definitely an implication there. Yes, I think so. Where's Blake? I have no idea. Why ask me? Because I thought you might know. Well, I don't. We have the setup where Blake is clearly working on this plan. He hasn't bothered telling any of the others, with the exception of his discussion with Callie, who gave him the idea in the first place. You notice Jenna gets a bit unhappy when she discovers that Callie knows more than she does. And, of course, Avon uses this as another reason, really, that Blake is just leading them on a crusade. Now, I made the note, we've seen in previous episodes Avon maybe testing the waters on one of Blake's decisions and then backing off because clearly he's not going to win this fight with the crew. But this is one where he does keep needling Blake and keep sort of making little comments, little barbs, putting stuff out there. Because I think he does see that this actually might be a debate where he can have the crew on his side. This idea that attacking one of the most defended and well-established weapons places in the Federation is actually a pretty stupid idea. Yes. He reckons he can get the crew on side and actually win one over Blake. Yes, Avon does use this as, a, as something to attack Blake with. They then obviously get to make fun of Gan, because he's committed, but... <laughs> it wouldn't be alone if you just left him, Avon. You would stay with him. Yes. Virtually alone, then. <laughs> uh, an important point that comes out of this discussion is this is the first time we get any mention that Blake wants to attack something called Central Control. Yes, indeed, on Earth. Yes, Yes, it's just a passing line, but it's the first Mm. of something I suspect we'll be hearing more about. Indeed. The crew, as we said, aren't really driving a lot of the narrative because ultimately they're really just fulfilling the parts Carmel really has already determined that they will undertake. No, the interaction between them is great. They get some nice dialogue with Servan at the end, but they don't drive the plot, they are driven by the plot. Yes. So there we go. A couple of production notes just before we go into our regular segments. We're talking about the location a little earlier. This was at a place called the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory in Didcot, Oxfordshire. Now, that's apparently the same location that they used in the Android invasion. I think it must be around the back or something, because I didn't recognise any of that from... No, and that really just sort of affirms this idea that it could have been shot so much better. Yes. Now, and again, thanks to making Blake 7, the initial spaceship explosion we see right at the start of the episode, that obviously is a model shot. And it was done as a forced perspective shot on location. And you notice that's the little uh, Space Master ship that we've seen two or three times now. Now, we mentioned at the start that Brian Croucher is playing Travis. Yes. What we haven't spoken about is that Stephen Greif isn't. No. So, So do you want to maybe talk us through that? We sort of glossed over this in our season special. Yeah, we got to the end of season one. Now, we said there that the regulars all had options on their contract. Now, because Travis and Serverland are minor characters and were contracted later than the regular cast, they didn't have such a restriction. Yes, and they were recurring rather than regulars. Yes. And we get to the end of the first season. Stephen Greif is a little unhappy, really, with how Travis is progressing because he feels it's very much that sort of pantomime. Curse you, Blake. I'll get you next time. Yes. So 
when he gets a film offer to go and film the Great Riviera Bank robbery in the south of France for a little while, <laughs> I don't think it's that difficult a decision perhaps he makes to leave. Yes. He does have a change of heart. The production team, and indeed Terry Nation, are very keen to keep Travis on because he's a counter to Blake and they think the character is working quite well. So they do make a number of overtures to him, look, would you reconsider, would you come back? And I think they get to a point where he sort of agrees, look, if he can slot it in, he'll do it on the understanding that they will develop Travis's character and he will get some actual character progression. And this script actually is the first evidence of that. This was written before he finally dropped out. Yes. So this would have been what we would have seen. Unfortunately, by then, he's fully committed to the movie and, look, the schedules just are a total odd, so uh, he has to bow out. So we get... Brian Croucher. Now, yes. he's someone who's tried before to get into the series. Yes, he is. He had apparently auditioned for Blake back at the start of the series. Now, I think his take on Blake would have been he latched on to more the criminal element of it that our heroes are criminals because he is somebody, I think, who had had dealings with the law in his earlier years. Mm-hmm. And I, was known for playing heavies and that sort of thing yes, in, he was. In, in television. Yes. He also has the idea that really this is a series about criminals, yet they've all got these RP accents and, of yep. course, they're all talking like Royal Shakespeare Company players, where really they would be talking more like working class people. And, of course, he obviously has a bit of a Cockney accent. But, look, obviously they cast Gareth Thomas... One final point, actually, just before we go into our regular segments, and I, I hadn't noticed this, apparently this is the first time that Serverland's name is used on screen. All through season one, and I did go back and check the online scripts for this, all through season one they refer to her as the Supreme Commander. Even though it's Serverland in the credits, this is the first time they actually use the name Serverland on screen. That's kind of blown my mind, if true. Uh, yeah, I must admit, that really blew me away as well when I saw that. Okay. Yeah, there you go. On that bombshell... Let's just just pause for a minute so we can all take that in. (laughs) Yeah, on that bombshell, uh, let's go to our regular segment. Yes. So we have a number of guest stars to just walk through here. Just before we go through them, one note Chris Boucher did say about this uh, episode, although he really didn't like the finished product, he did at least say that Whatever George Benton Foster might have done to his script, he did cast very excellent guest cast. Uh, yeah, very much so. So I'll kick us off with the first guest star, who look, I think was our favourite, which is Scott Fredericks as Carnell. Yep. Two Doctor Who credits here. He plays Boaz in Day of the Daleks and Style in Image of the Fendal, which was a Chris Boucher script and directed by George Benton Foster. So. Yes, indeed. And that's a wonderful performance as well. Yes, Max William Style, yes. Yep, he's very good in that. Uh, he's in an episode of Dad's Army playing a Nazi photographer. And probably his most famous credit, he did 68 episodes of Triangle as Tom Kelly. Yeah, he was an Irish actor and he did quite a bit of work there as well. I think he was a couple of Irish soap operas and he worked as a director. Yes. Uh, I think in Irish TV or an Irish stage as well. And sadly, he passed away last year. Yes, only just last year. Yes. And I think he did say, out of everything he did, this is one of his favourite roles. If not his favourite role. Absolutely. Hmm. Our next guest player this week is John Bennett. Now, he obviously has two Doctor Who credits. He's in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Yes, one of my favourites. Yes, and he's also in Talons of Wang Chiang. Quite notoriously. Yes, and, and isn't that a topic for recent discussion? <laughs> uh, look, for those who aren't Doctor Who fans and are not aware, he does appear in the Talons of Wang Chiang as the character Lee Sen Chang in yellow face makeup, and that is a little bit problematic in this day and age. Yes, it is. A few credits of his that I've got. He was in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer in 1960. Yep. He has an uncredited role in Lawrence of Arabia. Really? Uh, yes. 
He was in the Forsyth Saga, two episodes of The Avengers, and he has a minor role in by Claudius. He plays Xenophon. Oh, he was a voice in Watership Down. Yes, that's right. He was quite well known in the late 60s. He was in a, a soap opera called Honey Lane, which ran for a couple of years right at the end of the 60s. It was sort of EastEnders probably about 15, 20 years early. Right. Because it's set in the East End in a series of market stalls. It apparently had over 20 million viewers at its peak, so it was actually a very popular series. Okay. Yes, he sadly passed away in 2005. And outside of acting, he was apparently an accomplished glider pilot. There you go. Clone Master Fenn was played by Kathleen Byron. She has got a stack of credits going back to 1938. A lot of those are very much stuff that's been lost in the mists of time. Probably one of her more famous roles, she was in Tom Brown's School Days in 1951. Okay. Which is a very highly regarded piece of work. Mm -hmm. She was in Callan. Ah, yes, one of the missing Callans, sadly. Yes, and she was also in one of ITV's big dramas, which was Edward VII, where she played the uh, wife of the Crown Prince and then King of Denmark. Right. There you go. And I guess finally, rounding out our guest cast is Candace Glendening as Rochelle. Apart from Black Seven, obviously, I think probably her best-known work. She was in a couple of early 70s UK horror films that I think were sort of very much seen as probably exploitation material at the time, but I think now sort of gained a bit of a cult status. She had apparently auditioned for the role of Jenna. Okay. Back at the start of the series. She's another one who was in Nicholas and Alexandra. Okay, yes. Uh, She played another one of the Tsar's daughters. Yep. Something I have seen her in recently, she was in a late 60s series when she was, I think, still a, a, like a student actress. A thing called The Tyrant King, which was sort of a kid series in the late 60s about a group of kids who find what they think is, is this sort of conspiracy. It, it's, it's a thinly veiled thing around London's landmarks right. um, and stars Philip Maticus, the okay. adult protagonist. Okay. Um, it was quite a trippy little series, but I did rewatch that recently. She is still around, but I think very much has dropped out of public view. Yeah, she doesn't have a lot of credits after Blake Seven. Mm. Two things that I did pick up, though, of interest, she was in an episode of Up Pompeii. All right. And an episode of Ripping Yards with Michael Palin. Now, Richard, I have promised to give all the Doctor Who references in, in, in our guest cast ah, segment. Ah, ah, so I have to mention that Graham Simpson, who plays the officer in one scene of this, was the hitchhiker in Image of the Fendal, who gets killed without any lines. Yes, indeed. Um, so, uh, there's some thoroughness for you. Yeah, well, actually, I do have a note about him as well. And again, thank you to Making Blake Seven. They have a note. He retired from acting, and he later became the chairman of Watford Football Club. So, <laughs> he went on to much bigger and better things. Fair enough. We'll move on then to our Liberator data bank. A note that I had here is the way that ORAC is used. Mm-hmm. It's shown here that ORAC, although he is able to access vast amounts of information, there is a process to get it. Mm. He actually takes time to get it. He has to go in and do whatever it is he does. Yes. I guess manipulate Tariel cells or whatever to get the information. So that does put a dramatic limit on what Orac can do. Yes, and I guess putting a modern spin on it, he would have to probably breach firewalls and stuff to get into sensitive information. He does make the note here that the reason he's able to get the thing about the security alert so quickly is that it's in a cipher that the crew have already broken. And we do see that again through the series, that it takes Orac time to get information. Yes, which does put a limit on the crew. Yes, it does. Another thing we had here, and it follows on from last week, we do get some more information about the grading system or the class system or whatever you want to call it within the Federation. The Alphas obviously are the very privileged group at the top. Blake is an Alpha and you would assume Avon would be as well. Yeah. Whereas Villa is a Delta service grade, so he's probably only one above Rochelle. Yeah. And we see more here. Kozer is obviously deeply resentful of where he is. And it would seem, obviously, that the system is perhaps not entirely a meritocracy. And we will see a little later who you know, obviously, in some places is just as important 
one minor point from me is that Blake and Avon do meet Servland again. Yes, which indeed. is something we're watching just to see that relationship build up. Mm. Now, I guess one last thing, just perhaps before we move on. Of course, this perhaps isn't the end for Carnell, as anyone who's listened to the Caldor City series of audios. I think it's pretty obvious that's meant to be the same character. And this is where he's gone to hide, clearly after leaving the Federation. Yeah, so I guess to make me take a step back, the Caldor City audio adventures are basically a set of audio plays put together by Magic Bullet. Yep. And they are very, very good. They basically take Doctor Who and Blake Seven characters and ideas. Yes, well, it's obviously set in the Robots of Death universe. Yeah, and I was going to say particularly those involving Chris Boucher's writing. So they take the setting from one of his Doctor Who stories... They put Carnell into that. Paul Darrow turns up as a character that is Avon in everything but name for copyright reasons. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and they're actually a series of very good adventures. They were. I really enjoyed listening to them. I was sort of always left with the hope that they would do more, but unfortunately the death of Russell Hunter, I think, probably precluded that. But Plus, you know, the budget is also very tough. It's a very yes. niche market. But that just shows how much depth there was to Carnell as well. And another sign of just what an interesting character Carnell is is that Chris Boucher uses him in one of his Doctor Who original novels, Corpse Marker. Yes, indeed. So there we go. Our next segment is, look, it was the 1970s. I only had one note for this, and that is, just following on from what you were saying, Richard, about the grading system in the Federation, there are similarities there, I suspect, that would resonate more with the 1970s UK audience Mm. of the 11-plus exams, which was very much this idea that at the age of 11... You did this exam, and that basically decided whether you were going to go to a grammar school and be smart and run the country, or you were going to go to a tech school and make stuff. Yes. A system very similar to what we had in Australia, although without the 11+. plus. Mm. I was going to say, that's sort of probably the comprehensive. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, before yes. the... Um, before Grand Shield. Yes. Before Grand Shield. <laughs> <laughs> yes, before Britain went comprehensive. But mm. for a 1970s audience, that I think might resonate a bit more. Yep. One other small point just before we move on. The little chess machine that Carnell has, that was actually one of the very first commercially available chess machines oh, wow. uh, on the market. So there is a, probably a bit of real world stuff there. And at the time, actually, a chess machine would have been quite a novel thing. Okay, cool. Hmm. We're now going to move on and introduce a new regular segment we call What Happened Next? Because <laughs> this is the first of what we think are going to be a number of examples of Blake moving on from the plot and... Mm. Actually, what happens afterwards is worthy of conjecture. Yes, indeed. I mean, we probably saw that to an extent last week where he's intending just to drop Beck back at Space City and expects him to build an army. (laughs) That's true, but this is one where I just sort of sat there and thought whilst watching this, if Serverland really wanted, there's nothing to stop her sending a pursuit ship, Hmm. doing a very quick aerial bombardment of the building that Clone Blake and Rochelle are in, and that's the end of them and Imi Pack done dusted. Well, that's the thing. If she can't have Imi Pack, nobody else will. Yeah, yeah. so th- this idea that they lived happily ever after, I suspect, is maybe a little romantic. Mm. <laughs> I think so. But we will be revisiting this segment on uh, future episodes. Mm. Now we move perhaps on a, another slightly lighter segment, which is Gan Watch. This is a very bad episode for Gan. It is, which is a shame, actually, because we said in Chris Boucher's second script he actually gets a lot to do last week. But here, yeah, Gan, really, his main function is just to sort of feed lines to the other characters. It is incredibly telling that in the big standoff that's meant to be sort of the dramatic conclusion of the Hmm. episode, Blake and Avon and Gan are confronting Travis and Servalan. Travis gets lines, Servalan gets lines, Blake gets lines, Avon gets lines, Blake and Avon get to wave guns around and be threatening. Gan literally stands behind them and does nothing. No. 
I suppose he gets to fight a guard when they get down onto the surface. But, but yeah, it's a very poor Gan episode. And as you said, after last week, it's a shame, but this really is just an example of if Gan was removed from this episode, it would have no impact. No, not really. You could very easily give his lines to somebody else. Which brings us to what cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week? Yes. Speaking of Gan, one of the ones I had initially is Avon picking on Gan, where Gan makes the point that Blake wouldn't be alone if just Avon left, to which Avon says, so you would stay with him? Yes. So virtually alone then. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he gets the line to Kelly, on earth it is considered ill-mannered to kill your friends while committing suicide. (laughs) And he actually gets quite bitchy in this episode because... There's the line where Blake says to Villa, it's not a question of sides, Villa. To which Avon responds, no, it's a question of intelligence, so your opinion has very little relevance. (laughs) And of course, what I think is perhaps one of Avon's better known lines, justify, stupid. (laughs) And I kind of get what he's trying to say, but he does that with such relish. And he just sits back in his seat with this sort of dissatisfied, I'm done. You can see Chris Boucher really, really wants to write lines for him and not so much for some of the others, which is a shame, really. And it's a bigger shame as well, because going back to my comments at the start, some of the dialogue in this is phenomenally good. Mm. Some of the ideas in this are phenomenally good, but a lot of it just is so bad. The script doesn't quite work as a concept, and the, the sets are poor, the costumes are stupid, some of the acting is poor. It's... It's a great shame. This, this episode could have been so much better. And that's really all you can say, unfortunately. There should have been another way. <laughs> Thank you, Peter Davison. So, look, to round things off, we're up to Player of the Week. And who is your Player of the Week, Dave? So, Richard, look, I've got a theory, so we'll test it now. I'll count to three. We'll both say who our Player of the Week was. Ready? Yep. One, two, three. Cardell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think through our dialogue, we've both identified he is... A wonderful character, a great idea. Yes. So well played. I was going to give an honourable mention to Brian Crouch because I felt a bit sorry for him, but um, <laughs> I, I think, because I do think this is a very difficult episode for him to come in on. It is. He was given a very difficult hand here. But uh, yeah, I think Carnell really steals this, which is surprising considering he's only in it for probably about five minutes of screen time. Absolutely. So look, not one of our favourite episodes, but some nice ideas. Next time we are going to be back with Horizon. Won't that be fun? I've got a bit to say about Horizon. Okay. But until then, I've been Dave. I've been Richard. Set course for Horizon. Hmm. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7.
other mistake I made was not getting an advance on my fee. 